Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Christ Jesus and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for his salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed with various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible 
and full of glory, obtaining as an outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things unto which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the formal lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purify your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of the seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the Word which was preached to you.
Last week, Micah accused me of dangling our eschatological hope in front of us for many weeks, apparently as some kind of ploy on my part to get you to keep showing up week by week, wondering if I would finally get to our eschatological hope this week. Well, not this week either, (laughs) although we may very well introduce it before we're done this morning. There are so many benefits of being a Christian, and there is so much instruction in the Bible about being Christian, that it's really hard to exhaust the topic, and one of the difficult portions of this particular series is that I have had to edit things and scale things down, because really I could read pretty much the entirety of the Bible and apply it to our benefits as being in Christ and Christ in us. So I've had to narrow it down to just those particular things that have to do with our behavior as Christians and the promises that are ours because we are Christian. And the one we're going to look at today starts in Matthew 5, so you can turn there. Last week, I tried to draw a clear differentiation between Christian people and the world. This is not unique to me. It's not something I made up. It's the way Jesus talks, that he compared his own to the world and said things like, I've chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But you are not of the world, because I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So he kept drawing these kind of distinctions between the world and Christians. In modern Christianity, sometimes you'll hear people talk about the Christian worldview. We talked about it a few weeks ago here, where you view the whole of your life and society and the politics and everything else that's happening on this planet You look at it through the lens of understanding Christ and the Bible, and that is the only way that this rather crazy world starts to make any sense. You can have a secular worldview where you can look at the world and think that it's all a result of chance and happenstance, and you can decide that Darwin was right and that you're really here as a result of a series of random mutations that somehow became you and giraffes and platypuses and even though you're all very different that was just random mutation but the closer you look at the science of life the more you see that there is a designer behind it and that mark that stamp of a designer that we see in the DNA of every living thing just yells loudly that God exists so we look at the world through that lens of recognizing that God exists and that he is sovereign and that he is a judge. And then we make the distinction, just as he did, between the world, their behavior, their thoughts, their philosophy, and the Christian way of thinking and being and the philosophy and theology of the Bible. So one of the things that Jesus has told us, which is an enormous benefit... One of the things he has told us is that we should trust him 
because he has overcome the world, all that worldliness, the world's way of thinking, the world's sinfulness and depravity, the world's philosophy. He has overcome that and then told us that we will also overcome the world by our faith in him. Well, that's a whole lot more than just a Christian worldview. That is an actual theological reality. That the way that you're going to overcome your sinfulness, your fleshliness, your worldliness, the way that you're going to overcome all that and stand in the presence of the glory of God is through faith in Christ. An enormous benefit, by the way. But then we are told that while we are here on the planet, and while we have this promise of overcoming the world, that we act as a preservative on the planet. The word that he uses is salt. We are salt on the planet. In the Middle East 2,000 years ago, salt was used primarily as a preservative. And if the salt lost its saltiness, it wasn't any value anymore. It wasn't useful anymore. So you would throw away older, unsalty salt. But we are told that we are the preservative of the planet so that we are not only salt in this world, but we are light in this world. The same way that he himself is the light who came to his own and his own received him not. But their darkness didn't consume the light of him even though he has risen off the planet and is sitting at the right hand of God now, he is still showing that light through his people. The very fact that the church of Jesus Christ exists, the very fact that faith exists in people is proof, sure proof and demonstration that the light of God is still shining as he still enlightens people, as he still wakes people up, as people are still being born again and regenerated that is proof positive that God is still in the business of enlightening his people so that we are then the light of the world. Now, I didn't just make that up. Jesus said it. So how, in what way, can you consider yourself a light to the world? Well, obviously, everything we've been talking about for the last couple of months about how to be the Christian that behavior that is involved in being Christian is how you reflect the light of God through your life. Because people see that you're different. People see that you have that hope that passes understanding. And that's why Peter would write that when people see that in you, they're going to inquire about the hope that is within you. And that gives you the opportunity to give the apologetic, to give the reason, the rationale for the hope that is within you. And you'll do it with gentleness and kindness because that's the way Christianity works. And you will do it out of love for Christ and that will be reflected in the way that you talk, in the kindness that you show, in the love that you have for people. And in that way, you are bringing the light of God to the world. Well, that seems like a very large responsibility. Especially if I were to say to you, let's pick someone at random. April, you're from this point forward going to be the representative of the Queen of England here in America. Okay, so how is that going to affect your behavior? You think, oh, whatever I do, 
reflects on the Queen of England. I, I don't want to make her look bad. So you're going to carry yourself different. You're going to behave different. Well, if that is true, if I said, Leon, you're now the representative of the White House, you're going to be different. You're going to talk different. You're going to represent yourself different because you are actually representing something bigger than yourself. Okay, while you're walking on this planet with the Holy Spirit of God inside you, you are the representative of the king of the universe, the sovereign over everything, the God who saves and judges, and you represent him by the way that you conduct yourself here on the planet. How should that affect your behavior? How should that affect the way you speak, the way you present yourself? When we read about Jesus, that the common people heard him gladly... That means that common people ought to hear you gladly when you talk about Christ. And they ought to know that they can trust you. And they ought to know that you have their best interest at heart. They ought to see in you that you have this living hope. And they ought to see in you that you have this confidence in the future because you know the God who has tomorrow in his hands. So you are actually an ambassador for Jesus Christ here on planet earth I didn't say it he did let's look at Matthew Matthew 5 we're going to start reading at verse 13 but that's what my notes say and I don't agree with my notes I'd rather start at verse 2 because these are known as the Beatitudes not the attitudes of being the be attitudes these are the blessings that Jesus handed out. And he opened his mouth and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So do you want the kingdom of heaven? Is that your goal? Is that your aim? Is that what you're looking for? Well, he just told you who gets it. The ones who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. The King James says, the meek, the meek will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before them. So then I would ask the question, do you want to be part of the kingdom of heaven? Do you want to be called the sons of God? Do you want to see God? Do you want to receive mercy? Do you want to be satisfied? Do you want to inherit the earth? Do you want to be part of the heavenly destiny? Well, he told you right here what the characteristics are that would accomplish all of that. 
And those characteristics are gentleness and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. This is the same Jesus who said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added to you. He said, you should be merciful to people. The difference between mercy and grace is worth pointing out here. Grace, definitionally, is receiving kindness from God that you just don't deserve. But mercy is him not giving you what you do deserve. Whenever you get angry at somebody, whenever you go off on somebody, it's because you think they deserve your anger. They did something, they said something, and you're going to make them pay. That's the opposite of what it is to be merciful, to not give people what you ought to give them, recognizing, by the way, that God, who is going to be their judge, can actually even the scales a whole lot better than you can. So be merciful. You're also told to be pure in heart. That's the same idea as Paul picking up. Think on these things. Think on things that are good, things that are holy, things that are righteous. Think of things that are pure. If you spend too much time on social media, you are not spending your time on good and pure things. I just thought I'd throw that in because there's so much negativity in the world that is reflected in sewers like Twitter and Facebook you got to be careful what you're looking at when you're online. you got to be careful what you're listening to. Instead, you're to remain pure, godly, holy in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. You're also supposed to be a peacemaker. That means you're supposed to be solving the againstness that people naturally have against each other. You're supposed to be the reflection of Christ who made peace between you and his Father So then you are to help people come to terms with each other, come to peace with each other. And then, if you do all those things, you're going to be so different than the world. You're going to be so distinct from the world that the world is going to hate you. Because when you're like that, you're a great big flashing neon sign in bright red letters that says, God is real, God exists, and I have hope in a future because of the result of Christ's finished work. And people who don't have that, people who don't know that, don't have a good argument against it. They don't have the historical argument. They don't have the theological argument. They don't have the philosophical argument to tell you why Christianity is wrong. So instead, what they will do is just turn and rend you. Jesus said that. Don't cast your pearls before swine because they will stomp on your pearls and then turn and tear you to bits. Here's Jesus again saying, you're going to be blessed. God is going to bless you if you have these characteristics. But how is the world going to respond? Blessed are you when you've been persecuted for sake of righteousness. Persecuted for the sake of righteousness. That means that you are actively attempting to live in righteousness. You are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You are trying to remain pure in heart. You are trying. You're putting the effort in to being a peacemaker. You're putting the effort in to be different than the rest of the world. And the world is going to react to you exactly the way that Jesus said they were going to react to you. Which is that the world is going to hate you. But then blessed are you when they hate you. 
Blessed are you when you're persecuted. But notice it's not just persecuted generally. I mean, it's easy to get persecuted. It's easy to do something to make somebody else hate you. I, I hate to keep bringing up social media, but I see this happen a lot. People purposefully say something controversial just so they can get people to bark back at them. And then they call that persecution. No, the persecution here is for righteousness sake. For God's sake, for the sake of holiness, for the sake that you are trying to be different than the world. If you are persecuted for that kind of righteousness, then you're really blessed. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me, says Christ. It has to be on account of Christ. If you are standing there holding the banner of Christ, if you are standing there being a beacon to the world, a light to the world, if you are demonstrating the reality of God in Christ still alive and living and powerful here on planet Earth to this day, the world will not like you for it. How do I know the world's not going to like you for it? Well, it's a whole lot more than just experiential knowledge. I know it because the God who knows everything said that's what's going to happen. So you shouldn't be surprised. When people persecute you for righteousness sake. So rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's difficult. I understand it's difficult when people are casting aspersions at you and insulting you. When people are saying all kinds of terrible things about you and hating you for sake of your commitment to Christian ideals. And yet Christ says, rejoice in it. Be happy in it. Be happy that you were counted among the people who were so obviously gods that the world that doesn't know God would hate you for it. That is a sure sign of your distinction from the world and that you are fully committed, sold out to God himself. Okay, now that was all introduction to get us to verse 12. Now, knowing all that about yourself, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. So now knowing everything he has described about the difference between the world and yourself, now you get some sense of what he means by you are the salt of the world. You are the preservative. As long as you are here, we're going to find out when we finally get to our eschatological hope and the eschatological blessings that lay ahead of us, we're going to find that one of the great benefits of Christianity is that we are a preservative against God's wrath and God's wrath doesn't fall on the world until we are taken out of the way, which means as long as we're here, the wrath of God hasn't come yet. No matter how bad it is, no matter how bad it gets, it's not the wrath of God yet. And the wrath of God cannot happen long as his church is here. But we'll get to that. That's part of what it is to be the salt, to be the preservative of the earth. But then he admonishes his disciples and says, but if the salt has become tasteless, King James says, if it's lost its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? Chemically impossible. If salt loses its 
intrinsic ability to be salty. It's not good for anything. So how will it be made salty again? It's good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Okay, so that's a warning. He's not technically just talking about seasonings here. He's talking about you being the representative of Christ on planet Earth. You being the very salt of the Earth. You being the preservative of the Earth and demonstrating it by the way that you live, by the way that you are a peacemaker, by the way that you are gentle and kind, the way that you seek after righteousness. All of those characteristics are the characteristics that demonstrate that you are the salt of the earth. And if you lose those characteristics, you've lost your saltiness. And Jesus says, you're good for nothing more than throwing out and trampling underfoot. So he's encouraging you to persevere because it's going to get tough. As the days go by and the world gets crazier and crazier, it's going to get tougher and tougher to continue being a Christian here on the planet. And yet we're told, persevere, stay with it, count the cost, know what you're getting into, and don't lose that preservative quality that is the reason you are still on the planet. You are still here as a representative of Christ in the world. Verse 14 you are the light of the world. See, he is the light. He is the great eternal light. He is the ever-living light. He is the light that cannot be extinguished because it was a light that was never created. Therefore, he is the everlasting and eternal light, and his light reflects through you as you live out your life according to these standards. Everything we've been talking about in this series about being a Christian as you live out your Christian life, you reflect the light of God. And therefore, Jesus himself, who is the light, says that you are the light of the world. Now, it's not good enough to just say, great, I'm a candle. Or, yeah, I'm a flashlight. I'll just stay here in my dark room by myself. Instead, what he's going to say is, you are the light of the world. Now, go and shine. Go show people that light. His first example is, a city on a hill cannot be hid. That's a fact. If you have a, a hill, you have a wide plain, and suddenly there's a hill in the middle of the plain, and there's a city and city walls on top of it, you can't hide that. You know right where that city is. You can see it from a distance. Okay, well, he says that's what you're supposed to be. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. In other words, if you're genuinely Christian and you actually have the Holy Spirit of God residing in you, it'll show. It'll get out on you. People are going to find out. You're not supposed to hide your Christianity. You're supposed to wear your Christianity publicly as a demonstration of who you are and who Christ is and that you belong to him that you are sold out to him that you are seeking after the righteousness of God and that's the reason for your life here on the planet you're like a city that can't be hidden you're obvious nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure the King James I believe says don't put it under a bushel basket how many of you know the song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine? That's what this is about. 
If you light a candle or a torch, if you light something in a room, a dark room, and so you light something so that you can see, you don't do anything as foolish as then put it under some kind of canopy that darkens it again. The reason that you lit it was to light the room. So Jesus says, that's how you are to be. You don't light a lamp and then put it under a peck measure, but you put it up on a lampstand, and it gives light to everyone who's in the house. So that's the way you're supposed to live your Christianity, like a city on a hill that people can see, that can't be hidden. You're a light to the world, and you're supposed to be on a lampstand, not hidden under a bushel basket or a canopy, but actually lighting everyone who's in the house. So with those two examples, Jesus has told you how you are supposed to live out the characteristics that he has just described. If you're going to be gentle, if you're going to be kind, if you're going to thirst after righteousness, if you're going to be merciful, if you're going to be pure in heart, if you're going to be a peacemaker, if you're going to be like that, then that's going to make you a obvious and obvious. I was an English major. It's going to make you an obvious sign of Jesus Christ in the world. And the world's going to hate you for it. And nevertheless, despite the fact that they hate you, Jesus says, do it openly. Show it openly. Be a city on the hill. Be a light that's up on a lampstand. Don't hide your Christianity. Remember who it is you're representing. You're representing the sovereign of the universe. And what can men do to you? All they can ultimately do is kill you and send you home. So you have plenty of inspiration to go out and live your Christianity openly and boldly because the master of the universe told you to. And that's what it is to be the Christian. Let your light, says verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Okay, so now he's not even talking in any sort of pictures or analogies. He's saying it plainly. You're the light of the world. Now let that light shine before people, before men, in such a way that they will see your good works as opposed to the evil works of the world You're doing works of righteousness. You're seeking after the righteousness of God. And therefore, the world is going to see that in you. Some people are going to hate you for it. But also by doing it, some people are going to glorify God because of the way you are living. Some people are going to be attracted to it. You know, one of the great things about being openly and demonstrably Christian One of the great things about evangelizing as somebody who knows that God calls people, he chooses people, he saves people, he elects people. One of the great benefits that we have is that we know his people are out there. We know the elect exist. And so as we're going along telling about Christ and living for Christ and living out our righteousness, as we're living our life according to these standards... We know that some people are going to reject it. Some people are going to hate it. But some people are going to see it, and the lights are going to go on, and everybody's home, 
and they're, they're going to get it, and they're going to want to know, and they're going to inquire of you about this hope that you have. And you're going to have the opportunity to preach Christ to them as a result of their witnessing your behavior and your standard in life. Why do I know that's true? Because the master of the universe said it. He said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. You don't get the credit for the good works. Instead, it is God himself working through you. And you are walking in the good works that he has ordained that you would walk in. And through that combination of his sovereignty and your obedience, people are called to God and glorify God as a result. You become like a conduit, bringing people to be reconciled to their maker. But it's all him working through you to accomplish all that. He goes on. Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Okay, now you know that that is a Hebraism, the law and the prophets, that is like a nickname that the Jews used to use for the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the Tanakh, the whole of the Torah and the prophets and the writing. The best way to synopsize the whole Old Testament is refer to it as the law and the prophets. And now he says, don't think that I came to abolish that. I didn't do away with the Old Testament. I'm not getting rid of your scripture by giving you something that is wholly different than everything you've known and believed up until now. Instead, he says, I came to fulfill it. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. That's why we're told that all the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen. Because all the promises of God throughout the Old Testament are going to come to their fruition, but they're going to come to their fruition through Christ. So he didn't come to abolish what the Bible says in the Old Testament. He came to establish it and fulfill it. Part of that fulfilling work was to establish, to fulfill, to show the genuine severity of the law and carry the curse of the law away from his people. So he didn't do away with the law by just abolishing it and saying it's unimportant. Instead, he died under the curse of it. He was fulfilling the law. Now, there's a great deal more that the prophets have said. On Wednesday nights, we've been looking at the book of Isaiah, and we've pointed out the many times that Isaiah says things that just haven't happened yet. And I ask the question repeatedly, yes, but does it have to happen? After all, the Lord of the entire universe said it's going to happen. Here Jesus said he is going to fulfill all of it. In fact, watch how detailed he gets. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. When is that, by the way? Anybody got a date on that? The day that heaven and earth pass away? God has that under control. He's got that under control, but that seems like the end, right? Whatever the eschatological end is, 
he says until that happens until heaven and earth pass away not the smallest letter or stroke not one jot not one tittle shall pass away from the law until it is all accomplished that's the reason that I keep saying over and over again everything in the Bible Old and New Testament has to come true has to come true to the people who we promised it to and it has to come true in time and history actually factually literally it has to happen because we have a long history of God actually accomplishing his word factually literally historically in time therefore he has to do the rest of it and what is the sure guarantee that he's going to do the rest of it Jesus himself said I'll do it it's all going to be through me but I'm going to do every bit of it every jot every tittle every cross on a T every dot on an I none of it is abolished until I've done every single part of it that's a pretty good promise especially if you happen to belong to him and he said he's gonna save you you can rest assured that he's gonna save you because that salvation is all wrapped up in promises he made to you and none of those promises can be scrubbed or erased or changed or altered in any way you have the sure and certain Word of God with the down payment of Jesus Christ himself to guarantee that absolutely everything God has said about history about Israel and about you absolutely has to come true and Jesus said I'm gonna do it none of it passes away till I fulfill it okay so have you gotten the idea yet that you are the salt and the light of the world you stand in contrast to the world your behavior is not the world's behavior and because your behavior is different some in the world are going to hate you and some in the world are going to see that light and be attracted to it and by the way since the common people heard Jesus gladly I'll just throw this in make sure that what you're reflecting is Jesus and not you not your ego not building yourself up in some way come to me I'm the important guy instead you have to make sure that you're reflecting Jesus and reflecting him as altogether lovely because that's what he is and then when people are attracted to it you will know that they are attracted to Christ and not just to you being clever or erudite or talking them into something as I have said often if a man can talk you into something an equally clever man can talk you out of it so make sure that you are reflecting Christ okay so turn to first John first John chapter 4 I am going to read pretty much this whole chapter as we said last week John is the Apostle of love we began this series on being the Christian by looking at Jesus saying by this will all men know that you are my disciples by your love for each other John more than just about any other Apostle I shouldn't have said just about John more than any other Apostle emphasizes the necessity of love within Christianity we're going to start at 1st John 4 verse 1 
And by the way, I appreciate the chapter that Micah chose this morning in the scripture reading. And it did include to love one another sincerely from the heart. So it doesn't matter where you look. Whenever you see Christianity in the Bible, you're going to see the centrality of sacrificial love for each other. John says this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Something that John had to deal with, an early heresy in the church, was something that was known as Gnosticism. The word Gnostic just means knowing. Gnosticism essentially believed that everything fleshly was intrinsically evil and bad. Therefore, if Christ was actually on the planet and he was truly sinless and truly good, then he couldn't have actually come in the flesh. He had to be some kind of image, some kind of phantasm. He looked like he was a human being, but he wasn't. And they would assume that that was the only reason that you could actually kill him, because he wasn't really humanly, physically, fleshly. And so, uh, of course, he would rise again because he was spiritual, all spiritual, only spiritual. That's what John is responding to here in verse 2. When he says, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In that single phrase, he destroyed the Gnostic heresy. He was letting people know that the Gnostics were not telling them the truth and that Jesus Christ actually was fully flesh and fully God. If you confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, then you're from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It's one of the reasons that I emphasized a moment ago, make sure that what you're reflecting is Jesus. Make sure that he is getting preeminence for your reasons, for the hope that is within you, for the hope that you have for the future, for your understanding of your relationship with God and forgiveness. Make sure that he is always front and center in all of that because every spirit that puts something else in place of Jesus is not from God. Every spirit, everybody talking who would say, you can become righteous, you can become okay with God through your own behavior, through your own law keeping, through your own personal righteousness. If you just rev it up, if you just work harder, you'll be okay. Well, they have replaced Jesus with something else. That replacement of something else in place of Jesus is what is known as anti or substitute Christ. The name Antichrist, which is going to come up in this passage, means essentially either substitute Christ or it means in place of something that is denying Christ in favor of something else. Well, right here, John has told you that if you do not confess Jesus, that spirit that's saying that is not from God. That's why John would tell you, test the spirits 
because not every spirit is from God that means when you turn on the internet when you turn on the TV when you turn on the radio and somebody's talking about God you better know your Bible before you start listening because they might be telling you all kinds of wild wacky crazy made-up things and you're only gonna know if you're able to compare it to the actual Word of God because John himself just told us that there are spirits out there talking and they're telling you all kinds of things that will steer you away from the centrality and the sufficiency of Christ every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God this is the spirit of anti-Christ that is the spirit of substituting anything in the place of Christ by the way another word for a substitute of Christ in the place of Christ you know we talk about uh, Christ's vicarious substitutionary death those two words substitutionary and vicarious mean the same thing that he died in the place of others that means that the phrase the vicar of Christ actually means substitute in the place of Christ anybody ever heard that phrase mm -hmm. yeah that's very popular in the Catholic Church the vicar of Christ no no that's anti-Christ by definition that's the same word that means substitute of Christ in place of Christ well John has just defined for us that anything that replaces Christ is anti-Christ of which you have heard that it is coming okay Antichrist is coming we know that and now is already in the world so the spirit of Antichrist even if the the human being who's going to be the embodiment of that Antichrist attitude and spirit he's not here on planet earth in human history quite yet but the spirit behind him is still running rampant in the world the spirit that is going to drive him is still causing people all kinds of confusion and the primary tactic that the Antichrist uses is to find something anything in place of Christ Christ is always the answer Christ is the central issue you are from God little children and you have overcome them that's really why we're reading this passage one of the great benefits of Christianity is that yes the world is steeped in Antichrist the world is steeped in everything except Christ the world is chock full of everything else that you could entertain and amuse yourself with that's not Christ but then we're told you are from God little children and you have overcome them them there the antecedent would be the spirit of Antichrist the way to overcome the spirit of Antichrist in the world is to concentrate on the real Christ put the emphasis on the real Jesus live your life for the real Jesus and in that way you overcome the Antichrist and the spirit of Antichrist in the world you are from God little children you have overcome them because here's why not because you're smart not because you're clever not because you run faster and jump higher 
Not because there's anything in you. There's no quality in you that gives you the ability to overcome the power of Antichrist that exudes through this world. You're not able to stand up against that. Here is how you overcome the world. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So who's in you? The Holy Spirit of God. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. It's the power of God within you that gives you the ability to overcome the world. He still gets all the credit. He's still the first cause. And as I keep saying, this entire enterprise is Christocentric. It's Christ at the center. It's all about Christ. He is the power that overcomes the Antichrist. And when we get to our eschatological hope, someday which I know Micah would like to think is next week. But someday when we get there, we will see that not only does the spirit of Christ overcome the spirit of Antichrist in the world, but it is Christ with a two-edged sword out of his mouth that returns to the planet and mops up the floor with the actual physical Antichrist. It is the spirit of God, that spirit that is within you that overcomes the world. And that, by the way, is really good news. Amen. That, by the way, is also your inspiration for why you would be salt and light. That's the reason that you live out your Christianity demonstrably, where people can see it, where there's no question about who you are or what you believe. Even though they hate you for it, even though they persecute you for it, you're bold in your Christianity. For what reason? Because the one who lives in you is stronger, mightier, more powerful, sovereign over he that lives in the world. But notice the distinction again. He that is within you and he that is in the world. They're 180 degrees separated. You are from God, little children, and you have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They, those people over there, those people with that substitute Christ spirit, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. It's very much like Jesus saying, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. The world listens to the world. Why? Because they want to feel good about themselves. So they find other people who feel like them, who think like them, who say the same thing they think, and then they become a giant echo chamber, reassuring each other that they all believe the same thing. And therefore, power in numbers, we're all correct, we're all right. But we who are of God have overcome them. And that, I keep emphasizing, is remarkably good news. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world. And the world listens to them. But we, now I will tell you at this moment, John may be speaking of himself and the apostles, or he may be speaking of the church at large. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. And he who is not from God does not listen to us. Through the years here at GCA, we're coming up on 20 years of being here. Through the years, we've had people come in who needed to leave. Is that a good way to put it? You kind of needed to go. And the way that we have 
for lack of a nicer term, driven them out, is that we have given them a steady diet of sheep food. Dogs, pigs, goats don't like sheep food. After a while, they go hungry. After a while, they say, well, I'm not going there anymore because all they've got for me is sheep food, and I don't like sheep food, so I'm out of here. Woof and oink and out the door. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The world is going to listen to the world. We're from God, and those people who know God listen to us. When we're preaching the word of God, when we're preaching what the prophets and apostles have written, when we're preaching the foundational works that the Bible has handed us, the people who are of God, who have the spirit of God, are going to hear that. They're going to want it again and again and again. There are people sitting in the room right now who have been here for the vast majority of those 20 years. And they could tell you that most of what I'm saying right now is stuff I've said through the years. And yet they're sitting here listening to me say it again. Why? Because it's sheep food to sheep. They want to hear it. They want to be reassured by it. They want to be fed by it. They want that constant diet. Why? Because those who know God listen to us. And he who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. What's the separation point? Will they listen or will they not? You can say the same word. Paul said it. The same word brings life to some, death to others. You can tell the truth to a group of people, and some people will get it and see this as the answer to their eternal questions. Some people will hear it and say, I, I don't get it. Every atheist I've ever discussed with at some point has said, well, I read the Bible. Yeah, really, did you? Yeah, well, You didn't get it. It's a closed book to you then. You didn't hear it. You don't understand it. But if you do understand it, if you do hear it, if you can hear the very word of God, that is proof positive and evidence that you are from God. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us, we who know the truth, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. By the way, after him drawing all these distinctions between the world and Christians, after taking all this time to describe those that are of Christ and the Antichrist spirit, after him drawing these kind of distinctions, I think it's fair to say that the world does not know how to truly, genuinely, sacrificially love. They don't know how to exercise the love, that high form of love, that godly form of love, that revealed form of love that puts other people ahead of yourself. They might have eros. They might have erotic love. They may have the feeling of fleshly passion, and they may think that's love. But to really know sacrificial love... You have to know God because only God can reveal that kind of love to you. And that's the kind of love that Christians are called to. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God 
and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, my whole life I've heard that phrase, God is love, as if that's his primary characteristic, as if he has angels dancing around his head singing love, love, love. But if you look at it in context, that phrase is saying that because God is love, that's the only way that you could love with a God-like love. He is the source of that kind of love. He has to reveal that kind of love to you. And therefore, John could say, if you exercise that kind of love, that becomes evidence that you belong to God because God is the source of that kind of love. And the world can't love like that because the world doesn't have God as the source of their love. So the phrase, God is love, is a whole lot bigger than just, well, I can do whatever I want, and I don't really have to believe in Jesus, and I'll be okay when I get to heaven because I'm a pretty good person. And after all, you know, God is love, and so he's going to love me. Did I get my valley girl accent in there enough? (laughs) Love, he's just love, 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 love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested to us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we may live through him. So when God did that, that was primarily a demonstration of love. The very fact that he would send his son and then kill his son in your place so that you wouldn't have to undergo the punishment that was due you for your sins, the motivation behind doing all of that for you was that he loved you. He ever loved you. He loved you with an everlasting love. He loved you before you were born. You were always in his heart and mind and intention. You were part of the big plan of God. Therefore, he loved you, and you are to manifest that kind of love. Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we loved God. Boy, that's a fact. We didn't start out loving God. We loved ourselves. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you can ever really truly get a hold of that, you will be overwhelmed. You will marvel at the love of God who would pay such a high price for a measly little worm like you. Because you know in your mind, in your conscience, you know all the times and all the ways that you've ignored him or that you've sinned against him, that you've rebelled against him. You know the enemy spirit that's inside you. You know all that. You know you. And yet, talk about sacrificial love. He loved you so much that rather than kill you for your sins, which is what you deserve, he killed his son in your place so that you could have the righteousness of his son placed on your account so that you could ever live in the glory of God. That's love. That's a remarkable demonstration of love. And then you're told, okay, that's what love looks like. Now go do that. Go be loving to one another. Look after each other. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
Verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. Theologians argue about that and say, what about Moses on the hill and everything else? Read the whole phrase and you'll understand what John is getting at here. He's saying, you don't see God on a regular basis. You haven't seen God. You don't confer with God face to face, but you do see your brethren. And so if you don't love the brethren the way God loves the brethren, then how can you say you love God who you've never seen? But you see your brethren all the time. Here's his argument. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected or completed in us. By this we know that we abide in him, remain in him, stay firmly in him, and he in us, because he has sent us his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, people of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation, not Jews exclusively. Verse 15 Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he abides in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. What an interesting phrase. It's one thing for him to say we have come to know. That's like an intellectual assent. Okay, somebody has taught me that, somebody has told me that, and I have grasped it intellectually. But he also says we've come to believe it, which means you're not alone in the fact that that kind of love from God, that kind of mercy and grace from God, is just hard to believe. How could God be that good to someone like me? That's just unbelievable. That's why we use that word, just unbelievable. It is, it's unbelievable. And John says, not only have we come to know it, but we've come to believe the love of God, the love that God has for us. God is love, he writes, and the one who abides, stays, lives in, the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Verse 17, by this, love is completed or perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There it is. You're the representative of Christ on the planet. You're the salt and the light. You are here in the world, and you are to be as he is. How is he? Loving. How are you supposed to be? Loving. That's the demonstration of the distinction between you and the world, because the world can't be that loving, because it has to be revealed by God in order for you to be that loving. But then notice this. We have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected or completed in love. 
Now, he just said that we're going to have confidence in the day of judgment. That's what the big topic is. He's talking about the day of judgment. And how are we going to stand before God without fearing for our sinfulness and our rebellion? How are we going to stand before God and be accepted by him? By his perfect love, which casts out our fear. We have nothing to be afraid of. We get to run to the throne of grace, crying, Abba, Father. We are invited to go stand in that light that no man approaches. It's genuinely, truly unbelievable. And we wouldn't know it if the Bible had not revealed it to us. And we wouldn't believe it if God had not put his spirit in us, giving us the ability to understand these wonderful, marvelous things. By this, love is completed in us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love that can only be God's love. His is the only fully complete and perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, judgment. And the one who fears is not perfected or completed yet in love. We love because he first loved us. He said it back in verse 10. He says it again. He wants you to get that idea. We love because we are reflecting the love that he has for us. We love because he first loved us. And because he first loved us, that's our motivation to love each other. We love because he first loved us. I'm hurrying. If someone says, I love God, that would be the God you've never seen, and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have right from Christ, this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. It comes straight from Jesus. It was read by Micah this morning from Peter. We've read it here from John. You can't escape it that the chief characteristic of genuine Christianity is sacrificial love for one another. I'm just going to read two more passages. Just listen because the clock is working against me. These things I have spoken to you, says John 16, 33. This is Jesus speaking. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. That's how we overcome. We overcome through Christ. And knowing that we have overcome the world and its sinfulness and its depravity and that we've been separated from the world, we can then be told, let your light shine. We can then be told to be salt, to be preservative on the planet, to be bold, to be ready to take a stand for Christ. We'll close this morning with 1 John 5. If you're still in 1 John, you can flip over to chapter 5 real quick. I'm going to read the first five verses. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. For this we know, that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. If you love God and you observe his commandments, the end result will be that you love the children of God. The equation is obvious. 
By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God, we observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep those commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's how you overcome. That's how you get out of this sin-soaked world. That's how you end up getting to stand before the God of ages and enter the eternity that he is destined for you by holding on to your faith in Christ confidently, boldly, knowing that even as you do your good works, he's working through you in order to demonstrate himself, in order to demonstrate his light to people who will then be called to glorify God along with you. Those are very, very sobering benefits, that you are an emissary of Christ, that you represent the Lord of the universe as you're walking through this life. That's a great responsibility. And you have the responsibility directly from your Lord and Savior to be identifiable as separate from the world. And if the world hates you, it hated him. So count yourself blessed to be worthy of the hatred of the world. Because that's a sure demonstration that you belong to God. And therefore, love one another. Look after each other. You're going to only spend eternity together. Get used to each other. Treat each other well. Be kind to each other. Now, I have in my notes the beginning and introduction of our eschatological hope. But Micah will have to wait one more week. Let's sing. Turn in your hymn books to hymn number 352 and let's sing together. Jesus, lover of my soul.
for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.